um, grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that, passes, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. We've kind of endeavored this month in December to, to get a better grasp on the love of God together. And, and um, anyway, so, so we've talked in the last couple of weeks. We talked, um, oh, two weeks ago about how God's love is unfailing. It, it's loyal. It, it's, it's unending. It, it continues. We read in Hosea about how, how God said that he, he loved us with a, a human kindness or with bonds of love and about how he was unwilling despite our sins, he was unwilling to let us go. And uh, we talked about that great story in Hosea where God uses Hosea, Hosea and his, uh, the, his relationship with his unfaithful wife, Gomer, uh, to show us a picture about what this love is like that God has for us. Um, despite her unfaithfulness, uh, God told Hosea to go back to Gomer and to show his love again to her. He, wouldn't let, he told him, you, know, I'm not, you cannot let her go because this is the kind of love that I have for my people. I will not let them go. My love for them will not, will not fail. We talked last week about how God's love is merciful. Um, and that means what I mean by that is he's, he's desiring to show us mercy. He wants to show us his favor and he waits to do so. Um, he, he, he desires to, for re- reconciliation with us. He desires peace with us and he doesn't hold grudges. We, we talked last week from Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Today, what I wanted to talk about is God's redeeming love. And I tell you, I've been, this is the one I'm most excited about. I love this part. I love this, this idea that, that, that um, has kind of worked its way into the scriptures um, about redemption. And, and let me just tell you really quickly um, kind of where, this, where these thoughts or ideas came from and how they, how they came to be part of what we have here today in the Bible, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. There is the thought of, of redemption um, first off, there's the thought of redemption where, um, where a prisoner um, or a, someone who was a uh, prisoner of war or someone who was a, uh, a slave could be bought out of their state of being a prisoner. So you could go make a payment and get a prisoner out of prison, right? Or if there was a prison, prisoner of war, um, whoever, was the, the, uh, whoever had the soldiers, that king could go to the other king and say, I'll pay you a ransom to get my soldiers back, to get my people back, but I want to buy them back. And so I want to redeem them by paying you a ransom to buy back my soldiers. And one of the other things is very early on, God himself built into the law of the Israelites, he built in this idea of redemption right into the law, right into the Old Testament law. And it's really beautiful, but, um, but um, the, uh, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law provided for redemption. And let me tell you about that. There was, there was someone known in the NIV translation, it's known as the kinsman redeemer. We're going to actually read about that in, in Ruth, the book of Ruth here in just a little bit. But, but before we do that, um, in, in Deuteronomy, there's this idea of a redeemer built right into the law where what God says is that what God had done is that he had built in this idea where if a man died and his wife was left a widow and had no heirs, one of the responsibilities of the next of kin, or maybe one of his brothers, likely one of his brothers, would be to take his widow as his own bride and to produce heirs. And, you know, that sounds a little weird to us today. You know, you can't imagine, right, marrying your sister-in-law. Well, I can't, for example. But anyway, uh, maybe you can, but no, probably shouldn't. Um, but it, but it, the, the idea was is that a woman without a man in her life in this society 
was, yeah, I see a lot of head shaking. That's funny. Um, a man in the, a woman in the society who was a widow and who had no man in her life would be left absolutely destitute, absolutely dependent on some other family member to take care of them. And so the reason, what, what God did was he built into Deuteronomy, he built right into the law an ability for the family or responsibility for the family to take care of those women who had been left alone. It's really a beautiful picture and a beautiful example of God taking care of, even taking care of, of the widow, right? He takes care of the widow and the orphan, and he built that right into the law of the Israelites. But it wasn't just for that. The, the, the kinsman redeemer or, or that, that person who's the next of kin, they also had some responsibility. If, if, for example, if I had a brother and my brother had fallen on hard times and he sold our crump family property, of which, you know, we have vast Wealth is and riches, right, Dad? I mean, it just, yes, pass from one generation to the next. Vast, incredible, crump enterprises, really. Uh, not really. But uh, anyway, if I had, if, and he, if, if my brother had had uh, some wealth in property, and it had been in our family for years, but he fell on hard times and he had to sell the property, as the next of kin, it was my responsibility to go buy or redeem that land back to put back under my family name. Part of the law, part of the Old Testament, to redeem that land so it would be back under the name of our family, the mighty family of the Crumps or something. Okay, and the next thing was a relative who'd been sold into slavery. So if if a relative, it, it was very common practice actually in these days where someone might voluntarily sign up to be sold into slavery, right? If you couldn't eat, you might sell yourself into slavery so that you would live in someone's house and be their servant so that you could at least have food to eat, and then all you would do is serve them, right? Whatever they needed. You would plow their fields, you would take care of their house, whatever it was, you would prepare their meals, whatever, you would sell yourself into slavery, right? Very common in those days. The kinsman redeemer, one of his responsibilities was to go and to buy back those family members who'd been lost in slavery, right? Okay, the last thing is, um, maybe not the prettiest idea about kinsmen redeemers, but it was the idea of the avenger. The, matter of fact, the word, um, the, the word for, um, for uh, this kinsman redeemer idea in the Old Testament can also be, be translated an avenger. And what that means is, is if someone kills part of your family, then the kinsman redeemer would go and avenge his death. Okay, maybe not the prettiest idea of the kinsman redeemer, maybe not quite as romantic as some of the other things that we're going to be talking about, but the kinsman redeemer was also an avenger. But, but God had built this right into the Israelite law in Deuteronomy and in other places, and you can see it at work in other places, in many places throughout the, the Old Testament. Um, and so anyway, we're going to be talking about this. God had built this right into his plan because what he was doing was he was establishing and showing us what his love is like. Yeah, and what it would look like when Jesus Christ came, who would buy back His people from their sins. So let's get started. You know, one of the reasons that we have the Old Testament is for us to, you know, um, in the New Testament, it says about the Old Testament, it says the Old Testament and the law was like a shadow of what was to come. Well, what was to come? You know this, right? It's Jesus Christ. He was the one who was to come. He was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. He was the fulfillment of all of God's plans to bring about salvation and redemption to man. All of that was embodied in the life of this baby uh, who we, whose life we celebrate coming in December, right, on December 25th. It, it was him. And so when we look at the Old Testament, 
It's, it helps us grasp a little better picture of what is it that Jesus Christ has done for us. What is it that he's done? And, and when we go back and reread the Old Testament, we realize it's a foreshadowing or a typology of what Jesus did. And it kind of helps us kind of step back and take a little different perspective and say, oh, yeah, I see a little clearer now what it is that Jesus has done. Because it's so hard to grasp how big the love of God is, isn't it? It's so hard for us. So hard that Paul prayed for the Holy Spirit's power to be at work in the people of Ephesus so that they might have power to understand how big, how wide, and deep, and high, and long, and I always get those in a different order, is the love of God for us. Amen? So big, it's hard to take in. So God gave us a gift here. We have the Old Testament so we can stand back and say, ah, I see this at work in a relationship uh, between a man and a woman. I can see how, how Hosea refused to let Gomer go and how that, that bond of love persisted even though Gomer was, was, was uh, sinful and sinned against, against Hosea. And then I can see, ah, that's the kind of love that God has for me. And in a hundred thousand different ways, God is telling us about himself in the stories and the foreshadowing and the typology of the Old Testament so that we can understand the New Testament better. Amen? Amen. So pick it up, read it. It's important. It'll help you get a better grasp of who God is and what he's done on our behalf. So let's start, though. I want to start in Job, of all places, Job chapter 19. I tell you what, if you have your Bible with you, let me, and to find Job, right, you, uh, you hit the Psalms and turn left, right? Uh, so hit the Psalms, turn left. Job chapter 19. Look with me in the very beginning of Job, though. Um, let's just thumb through these together, and I want to, I want to set the stage for you. Um, so, so Job chapter 1, if you're there, Job has a first test. Or you remember the story? Satan goes to God and says, hey, um, Job's only following you because you bless him. If you take the blessing away, he'll curse you. He won't follow you anymore. And God says, you go and do what you want, but you can't touch his life. And so we have chapter 1 is pretty rough on Job. He loses everything, his livestock, his wealth. He loses it all. Not only that, it ends with him losing his sons and daughters also. And then comes the second test. And then, if you just kind of keep flipping through, now flip with me over to Job chapter 19. It just kind of gets worse from there. Things just kind of get, get, don't, don't get any better. Ends up that he ends up losing his health because Job comes down with, with sores all over his body, very painful sores, and he's kind of sitting there in his own misery. Job had a tough time. Yeah? I mean, you read about what happened to Job, and we, I mean, we don't, we, no one has stories like this. You know what I mean? Job suffered like maybe no one besides Christ um, in all of the, of, of the scriptures. But in, in, in Job, we, we have these stories. And so we're going to pick up in Job chapter 19, about halfway through the, halfway through the, um, that chapter. And what's happening is, is that Job has some friends, and I'll use the terms loose, term loosely, who keep coming to him and saying, oh, Job, you have all these struggles. Let us help you. Oh, well, it must be because you're so sinful that you're having all these problems. And Job's saying, no, I don't have any sin in my life. I don't know why I'm going through this. doesn't have any idea about this conversation that God and Satan had had um, going on. So anyway, so this is Job. Listen to, listen to where he's at in verse 13 of chapter 19. He's talking about God here. God, he has an alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. By the way, this word kinsmen and friends and brothers, that, that's not the word kinsman redeemer. We'll read about here in a little bit. Um, this is the word yada. So you know when you say yada, 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 that actually means like brother, 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 or also Hebrew word for to know. So 
whatever. Okay, uh, that, that was free, by the way. Verse 15, my guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. Listen to verse 17, I love this. My breath is offensive to my wife. That's kind of funny, isn't it? What's he talking about there? Now, now what's he talking about? He's, anybody ever had breath that was offensive to their wives? Uh-huh, yeah, every morning, right? Now, but what he's talking about, he's talking about he's, his brothers. He's, he's looking to his brothers for help. They're not there. He's looking for his kinsmen or his relatives, and he's not there. He turns to his wife, and his words are offensive to her. Do you know why? Because Job's life was a mess, and no one wanted anything to do with him anymore. And because God had taken away his wealth, and because God had taken away his health, or allowed it to be taken away, however you want to view it, uh, not for today's top sermon, um, and because God had taken away, no one wanted anything to do with him anymore even his own wife. You ever had, and let me tell you what he's talking about here, about his breath was offensive to his wife. That means that what he's talking about there is not that he had halitosis, right? Not that he needed a mentos. The problem was every time he opened his mouth to speak to his wife, she was offended. You ever been in that kind of situation? A man I know I have in, in, in my house, and, and I don't make a light of that. I'm, I'm really being serious here. But, you know, they went through so much trouble and so much heartache that it affected their marriage is what's happened here. So he opens his mouth to speak to his wife, but it's just offense. And so what, what Job's getting at here is, I'm all alone. He starts this in saying, verse 13, he says, he, had, he has alienated my brothers from me. And then he keeps going down to say, my, my very best friends, my acquaintances, my servants, my wife, everyone has left me alone. There's no one left for him. He's suffered so much that no one wants to have anything to do with him anymore. He's lost so much that even his, he and his wife are struggling to get along. And even when he speaks, his breath is offensive to his wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends, this is, that's kind of interesting. That word is yada, yada. Even my intimate friends, that means the friends who know me most, right? Even my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only with the skin of my teeth. You ever wondered where that came from? That's where that came from. I've only escaped with the skin of my teeth. So then he's talking to his friends here who gathered around him, and he says, and they're not great friends either, right? They're saying, well, there must be something wrong with you, right? Verse 21, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? In other words, all the accusations that they're bringing up against him, Job saying, well, you know, why, why, why do you join in? You know, why do you join in in these accusations and you two are, are kind of kicking me while I'm down? In verse 23, oh, that my ver- words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Now listen what happens in verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. All right, so let's go back and talk about this just a little bit. Um, This word um, for... um, 
this word for the, this redeemer. This is the word that I was talking about that's translated in other parts of the, of the New Testament in the NIV as kinsman redeemer. What he's talking about here is he says, but I know that my redeemer lives. So what he's saying here is that I know that even though my friends have failed me, even though everyone's turned their back on me, even though then I know that the servant that I pay, you know, that I pay for his food and I pay for his housing, even though he won't come to me, and my very best friends, even though they've alienated me, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the midst of all of his loss, in the midst of the loss of all of his wealth, in the midst of the loss of all of his, all of his children, in the midst of the loss of, of, all of, the, of any respect he ever had in his community, amongst his friends, all of that being gone. But he stands in faith and said, makes this incredible statement, but I know my Redeemer lives. What an incredibly powerful thing. And just as a side note here, the, the story of Job, historians believe or, or theologians believe that this occurred during the time of the patriarchs, right? This is, I think Job was probably around the time, right, of the patriarchs of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, right? During that time frame that this happened. For, for Job to have such a clear understanding can only be the revelation of the Holy Spirit to him, for him to see that. But he has a, in, in, at the end of chapter 17, he makes a really similar um, confession where he says, but I have a, mm, I can't remember it, uh, advocate in heaven. Yeah, my advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. And yeah, he says, my, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. In, in, in the midst of all of this trouble, God gives Job this incredible revelation that God is for him and is standing by as his Redeemer, who's willing to stand by his side no matter what. No matter whether or not all everyone else in his life has turned away from him, his Redeemer lives. Uh, just an incredible, incredible statement, incredible understanding about God that was given by the Holy Spirit. And look what he says, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Look, he's saying that, th- that this Redeemer is going to last through, wh- even when the end comes, this Redeemer is going to stand on the earth, and he's going to persevere through no matter what happens. He will be there, this Redeemer who lives. And after all, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. This is incredible. This is the first time ever in the history of the Jews that anyone has made the case that there would be a, a bodily resurrection, that, 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 that our bodies weren't just doomed to decay. This is the first thought that anyone in Israel had ever had, that there was going to be a time that these bodies would be raised in the presence of God, and somehow Job gets it because it's revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, apparently, and he says, with my own eyes, even after my flesh has been destroyed, with my own eyes, I will see God. Just profound, just incredibly profound stuff. Actually, and these verses are referred to or quoted in the New Testament. Um, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What, what, a, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing to have Job. So uh, what do we do with this? Here, let, me, let me just make a suggestion to you this morning about how we read this. One is, is that to, to recognize that God is the Redeemer. He loves to be the Redeemer. And we're going to talk about those qualities here in just a little bit, about the qualities of the Redeemer. But, here, but, but, but the thing is here is that Job's confidence, despite his suffering, that God was there for him and was his Redeemer or Avenger 
or his kinsman or the one who would stand beside him no matter what. And he recognizes God is, let me just put it this way, he is my friend. Ah, Profound, isn't it? God is my friend. How about that? All the things that you and I could say about God. He is, he is mighty. He is almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of, of all creation. He is, he is holy and apart and, and separate from everything else. But one of the things, one of the most precious things that we can say about God, He is our friend. Amen. If you and I are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are His friends. It's what Jesus told His disciples. He says, I don't longer treat you like servants, for servants don't know their master's business. I treat you as my friends. He said on the evening before he was crucified in John chapter 14, maybe 13. Okay, um, so, so that's just an intro kind of about, about this idea about God as Redeemer. Let's move now into the book of Ruth. So, um, so yeah, so if you have your Bible with you, um, Ruth is right after the book of Judges if you're not used to getting there. So keep turning left past the history books, past the Psalm, uh, Samuel and uh, Chronicles and Kings and over into Ruth just before Judges, or I'm sorry, in order of your Bible, right after Judges. I want to talk to you about Ruth because the Ruth, the, the main theme of Ruth is this idea of the kinsman redeemer. And here God is just portraying exactly what he had built into, into the law about how that, that next of kin is supposed to have a, a love that won't let go of, of, a, of a family member who's down and out and, and hopeless and on their own. So in... Um, in, um, in the book of Ruth, if you would turn there, we're going to be, I think we're just going to pick up and just start in chapter two. But anyway, let me give you a little bit, bit of background. Um, Ruth is a young widow. Her husband dies and also, um, uh, and she has a mother-in-law whose name is Naomi, all right? So her name is Naomi. So Ruth is the young lady who's the, the, the character, main character of the book. Um, her husband passes away. Um, Ruth is not a Jew. She's a Moabite, okay? During the period of the judges, there's times that the Israelites are fighting with the, with the land of Moab, with the kingdom of Moab, and there are times that they're friends. This is apparently sometime when they're friends because they're intermarrying, okay? So, so um, Ruth is a Moabite, and, and uh, when, her, when her husband dies, her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, look, I can't provide for you because Naomi, her husband, had died. Naomi had lost her husband and had lost all of her sons. Sounds kind of similar to Job, actually, doesn't it? Uh, but she'd lost, she'd lost them all. Pardon me. She'd lost them all. And so now she was a widow with no man in her family to take care of her. And so Naomi is looking at both, actually, both of her daughters-in-laws had lost both of their sons. And she tells them, look, and they're both Moabites. And she says, look, it would be better for you to go back to your own family. It would be better for you to move back to Moab because I can't provide for you and we're just going to be destitute here. So you move on back. And it's just beautiful language and just a beautiful, um, beautiful stuff. I don't have this for the screen, but we might as well read it while we're here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, look with me. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Does that sound familiar? Like a song we've sang recently. Your people would be my people and your God, 
my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. I'm going to start incorporating that into my language every day. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates me and you. And so she stayed with Ruth. Okay, let me tell you what a, what a, she stayed with Naomi. So Ruth stays with Naomi. Okay, so she stays there in the land. She stays there in the land that's foreign to her. She stays there in a land with people that are foreign to her, with a foreign God that's foreign to her. But she says, I'm going to stay with you and your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It doesn't matter where you go. I'm going to go there with you. Even though Naomi had nothing to offer her. This was a beautiful, selfless act of Ruth to say, you know, we're, we're here and neither of us has a husband. None of us has anyone to take care of us, but I'm not leaving your side. Ruth has a godlike love for Naomi. And she says, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to stay with you. But they have no plan. They have no ability on their own to live any life but absolute destitution, absolute poverty, because they don't have a man in their life to to care for them. Back in a time in society where you just had to have that or you were absolutely going to be impoverished. It was just going to. It was just that going to be that way. So, so um, he stays. So Ruth stays there with Naomi. Okay, and then um, what else? So that's the background. Ruth is unwilling to leave, but Naomi had no sons. Live a life of party. Okay, there's a couple of themes that pick up here. Um, Naomi very early in the book says, "Don't call me Naomi," which, by the way, the name Naomi means pleasant. She says, "Don't call me Na- Naomi anymore." call me Mara. Mara is actually used in other parts of the, of the Old Testament because that means bitterness. So she said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because she had lost all her sons. She had lost her own husband and she had nothing left. And she's talking about how the Lord's hand is against her. So don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. There's this, there, so, so that's how the, the beginning of the book starts. And it also starts, you'll see another theme if you read the book of Ruth. You'll see another theme where, where Naomi says is that I am empty I have nothing left. I have nothing. Every, the Lord has taken everything from me. I have no husband. I have no, no, no sons. And I have no, no food. We're, they're living off of the generosity of other people. They said, we, I have nothing. And so the book starts with bitterness and it starts with emptiness. But then right in the middle of the book, ex, matter of fact, exactly in the middle of the book, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, and it's deliberately written this way so that it would be right in the middle of the book, just beautifully. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, what happens is that um, um, uh, Ruth goes and she, she is, you remember the term gleaning, she's gleaning from the fields of some people, which means that they're going behind, picking up the, the, the spilled stalks or the spilled grain from people who are doing the harvesting. And she just happens, actually the way the book of Ruth puts it basically is saying that that by the providence of God, she showed up in this man's field whose name was Boaz. Boaz is a relative of Ruth's dead husband, right? He is a kinsman. He is a close relative of theirs. And by by, just by God's providence, Ruth comes and and is gleaning in the fields to pick up enough wheat for her and her mother-in-law to eat, right? And so while she's in the field and while she's doing these things, um, we see Boaz being very kind, and he's matter of fact, he tells his, his servants, he says, um, be sloppy when you're cutting the wheat. Be a little sloppy. Leave some grains and some stock behind so that they'll have enough to eat. And he begins to show this same godlike love 
toward, toward Ruth and says, I want to make sure she's taken care of. So leave some stuff behind and don't get onto her when she takes um, when she takes that extra stuff that you've left behind. So Ruth comes back and is telling Naomi what Bo- Boaz has done for her. And in chapter two, 2, verse 20, Naomi replies, says this, The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not shopped, stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture to have it has started with bitterness and emptiness. And in the middle of the book, there's hope, right? In the middle of the book, Naomi looks up and she says, but wait, maybe God's kindness for me isn't over. Maybe he continues to show his favor toward me. Maybe there's hope yet for us, right? And there certainly is. And she says, but maybe it's in this man who is Boaz, who is one of our kinsmen and maybe will be our kinsman redeemer. Maybe we'll buy us out of this trouble that we're in. So just really quickly, I'm going to tell you what goes down. So what happens is that Boaz and Ruth begin to spend a little time together. And there's this, there's this beautiful picture where she lays at his feet and, and he covers her. Um, this is another term for redemption, actually. He covers her uh, during the night, right? He, he covers her over um, as she is there at his feet. And this term for cover is another Old Testament term used for redemption. And I, let me... Um, let me explain it this way, right? If, if I have sold myself into slavery, someone's got to cover my debt and buy me out. And so that's kind of this term of re- this third term of redemption that means a covering. This is the term kippur, which we've heard of, right, of Yom Kippur. That means the day of atonement or the day of covering. And it talks about how God covers over the sins of his people. But this is a term that's used for redemption in the Old Testament as we have this beautiful picture where Boaz, before he decides to marry her, is covering over or atoning for her in this beautiful picture as she lays at his feet. And as the kinsman redeemer, he comes and he covers over her and, about, and is just foreshadowing what's about to happen. This is just beautiful Jewish writing here that's happening here. Just a beautiful explanation about the love of Boaz and the covering that Boaz would provide to Naomi. And ultimately, listen, ultimately the covering that God would provide is foreshadowed here for people like you and me who are left hopeless who were left alone, who were left despairing, not knowing what would happen because we were lost in our sins. But God covered over our sin, and he redeemed us just like Boaz redeemed uh, Ruth, and he covered over all of our sin, and he, he paid the debt, and he redeemed us from the hopelessness that we were in. Praise him. Amen. Just beautiful picture. You need to be in Ruth. Pick up a Bible commentary when you're reading through it sometime. It's short. It's four chapters. It won't take you, won't take you half an hour to get through it. Pick up a Bible commentary so that you can pick up on, on this. The, the writer of Ruth uses just beautiful Jewish poetic languages, and, and the way that it's even structured and arranged, we would never get in English because we don't write like that. But it's just a, just a beautiful thing that happens here that's going on in the book of Ruth. So, so what happens here is that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, but the problem is... He's not the only kinsman redeemer. There's another one, and he's a closer kin to Ruth's uh, for ex, uh, not ex-husband, former husband, dead husband, than, than Boaz is. So there's another one. So there's legality to this. There's something that has to be done. So, so what has to happen is that first kinsman redeemer has to say, no, I won't do it, before Boaz can step in and say, 
I'll do it. And what am I talking about doing it? What I'm talking about doing it is, is going back and buying the property that had belonged to Elimelech, to, to, um, to Ruth's dead husband. He's, he's going to buy that back. But part of the deal is you buy back the property, the widow comes with it. How about that? So in a strange turn of events, the first man, who's the kinsman redeemer, says, yes, I'll buy the property. And then Boaz goes to him and says, oh, good, you'll enjoy your new relationship with Ruth. And he says, oh, wait a minute, this is going to complicate things to me. Now imagine, man, you know, in your life, uh, if you were going to buy a piece of property and another woman came with it, it might complicate things for you as well. True? Yes? It might make things a little stressful at home, if you know what I'm saying, right? Same thing here, although it probably doesn't have as much to do with his wife as it would if he had had, a, if he had, had an heir with this new woman, then all the property would go under the name of the deceased husband. Make any sense whatsoever? You following along with me? Everybody okay? Okay, to go on. Okay, so here's, here's the entanglement. This is all fairly complex stuff, and, and, and someone's going to have to step up to, to bring about the redemption or the buyback of the property and also to redeem, right? Here's, here's a bit of beautiful picture. It's not just the property. It's to redeem Ruth from the death of her husband, right? That's the beauty of this. Someone's going to have to step in. And we see what happens is really, that doesn't really say it this way in the Scriptures, but over a period of time, Ruth and Boaz fall in love right? And Boaz, in love, wants to be her kinsman, redeemer. So look with me just real quick, man. I want you to see this part in particular. Um, Four, six? No, it's actually before that. There's another part that it's not up on the board that I wanted to show you. Um, It's in verse chapter three. I I was reading another Bible when I was reading this. Okay, look with me at the end of, verse three, of chapter 3. Look with me in verse 18. Look, look, look what she says. Okay, so, so they've had this time where, where Boaz has covered Ruth in, in that atonement or that covering redemption that he covers Ruth up and, and she sleeps there at his feet. And nothing funny going on, just very, very precious, very beautiful picture about this, this love developing between them. And then in verse 18, Ruth goes back and tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, listen to what happened. And here's how Naomi responds about, about Boaz. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter. Now, that term wait is literally sit. It means sit, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. How about that? How, how about that confidence that Naomi has in Boaz? He says, you know, he's going to get this re- resolved today. He's going to handle this legal matter today. He's going to resolve all this. I love that. I love that confidence that her mother-in-law has in, in Boaz. But it's a beautiful picture for us two men, right, to, 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 to be that strong kind of redeeming love, to have that kind of redeeming love that says to take care of things and not let them slide, but to deal with them and take the initiative to deal with things as they come up and, and, and to deal with them and, and, and kind of act like Boaz is, is that, uh, you know, this is going to be settled today. And sure enough, Boaz goes, he talks to the other kinsman redeemer, says, hey, you want the property? The guy says, yes, I love the property. He says, good, well, you've got another, another wife then. And he says, well, wait a minute, this is going to complicate things for me. And so what we have in, in uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 6, is um, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, this is the other guy, the kinsman redeemer said, we don't ever learn his name, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I can't do it. 
Now in earlier times of Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. We don't do a lot of that anymore, right? Anybody exchange sandals uh, last time you shook hands or something? Okay, anyway. We signed papers, right? They exchanged sandals. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Okay, it's just kind of a cool picture of, right? It, it, here's the picture. The kinsman redeemer has this responsibility. He's supposed to be taking care of them, but he takes his sandal off and he hands it to Boaz. So a couple things pick up, right? First, the first kinsman redeemer refuses his responsibility. But Boaz takes the responsibility that was the first guy and takes it on himself and says, gladly, I'll take the responsibility. I want Ruth. I want to redeem this property. And how selfless he's doing it because he's not redeeming this. He's not just buying this property. The property is going to remain under the name of her, former, of her, of her dead husband, right? He, this isn't a selfish thing, except he gets the relationship with Ruth. He gets to, to, uh, to provide for her and be her husband. Okay. So then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, so this is all going on in front of the elders of the town and all the people, today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family from the town, or from the town records. Today you are witnesses." All right, what, what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful book. You know, we have this book where we have Naomi in the beginning who's alone and despairing and who has no hope, but Ruth comes in and she doesn't have anything to offer, offer except she says, but I won't leave you, right? I, I, I will not leave you. It would be convenient for me. It would be easier for me. I maybe could find a, a husband back in my own land, but I'm not going to leave you. She's exhibiting that kind of love that we were talking about in the very beginning. She has an unfailing love for her mother-in-law, and she says, I will not leave. I will not leave you here. I will not leave you hopeless. I won't leave you in despair. And then you have this great love for Boaz, with Boaz, between Boaz and Ruth, where Ruth says, I will buy back the property. I will redeem the property and I will put it back in the name of your mother-in-law, in the name of your de- deceased husband. And, but not only that, but I will redeem you, Ruth, from your widowhood, right? I will redeem you. I will buy you back and I will redeem your life and I will take on the responsibility um, of, of, being, of providing for you. Just a, a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful book, romantic. You know, I was asking, uh, Francine Rivers has written a book on um, Ruth called Unspoken, maybe? It's one of the unbooks, but anyway. Um, Jessica, my, my daughter Jessica was telling me, I was asking her, oh, you read a book about this, right? What did it say? And oh, her eyes lit up. Oh, my goodness. It was, they were all sparkly-eyed because it's so, such a beautiful romance about a man who's willing uh, to 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 uh, put himself out there to buy back the woman that he loves and to provide for her. What a beautiful picture. But yeah, Jessica got all uh, sparkly-eyed, kind of doe-eyed, telling me all about the book and just about that. But the point that I want to get to here is this. It is a beautiful book, and it's a beautiful story. But the reason it's beautiful is because Ruth and Boaz had a godlike love for people, had a godlike love for each other. And I guess the thing that I want to ask you about this morning, the thing I, that, that I really want to, want to push uh, on you, do you understand this part of God's love? Do you get this, that he has that kind of love for you? He was unwilling to leave you hopeless. He was unwilling to leave you in despair. 
He was unwilling to leave you without any hope for redemption or without any hope um, to, for your way out of sin. He would not leave you in desperation and he would not leave you in your poverty spiritually. But he came and he sent the ultimate kinsman redeemer who would step in and said, I'll take that responsibility. I will buy them back. I will pay the price. I, I will pay the price. And we know what price that he paid, right, was through the suffering of, uh, of, of his body and through the blood that he spilt. And the, we read it a, bit, a little bit in Sunday school this morning. And he felt forsaken by God for a time. Never must have felt that in his whole life until the day on the cross that he took on our sin. And for the first time ever must have felt that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did all of that because he was unwilling to leave you alone. He was unwilling to leave you where you were. And he came as your avenger. He came as your rescuer. And he came as your kinsman redeemer to buy you back when you were lost and when you were alone and when you were all by yourself and you were despairing because of your sin. He rescued you and me. Amen. And the beautiful picture, and just and I love this. You know, I love the picture of what of what Boaz does to cover over, um, <clears throat> to cover over um, Ruth while she slept there at his feet. It's just such a beautiful picture. And and listen, the intent is not just to tell you a sweet story in in the book. The intent is to help you understand this is what God did. This is, who, this is why the book of Ruth is in here, so that later you and I can get a little glimpse. We could step back and say, oh, look, what a beautiful relationship. What a beautiful thing Boaz did for Ruth. And we can say, God, Jesus Christ has done something very similar for me. He's covered over my sin. He's paid the ransom. He's covered over what I've done in his generosity and his love and his care for me. And his motivation is what I love about this, is that, and his motivation for all of it was love, a redeeming love, unwilling to leave us on our own, unwilling to leave us where we stood, unle- unwilling to leave us alone, empty, broken, and unhopeless, but a willingness to pay the price to save us and redeem us. Amen? Amen. Love it. I love it. All right, let's, let's pray and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, first of all, I want to ask, I, I, first, we just thank you. What a, what a powerful story. What, what a powerful imagery that you left in the book of Ruth for us, that, that we could understand a little better what your love is like, this redeeming love that you have for us that's absolutely unwilling to leave us in this state of lostness, but desiring to, to buy us back and redeem us. And not only that, not, not, just will, not just wanting it, but doing something about it, stepping up and, and taking the responsibility to say, I'll be their kinsman redeemer. I'll be the avenger. I'll be the one who stands up. I'll be the next of kin who, who stands up and, and makes and redeems and, and buys back what was lost in the fall. I'll be the one to do it. And, and that love that you have for us to take action, the love that you have for us to sacrifice yourself, Lord, it just blows us away. It just makes our heads scramble. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And, and Father, we thank you. We know that you've left these stories in, in the Old Testament for us so that we could understand the New Testament better so that we could see what Jesus has done even better for us. And so, Father, we thank you and we worship you for a redeeming kind of love, for your work of redemption in us, that you covered over all of our sin, that, that you paid the price to buy, back, uh, buy us back out of our uh, uh, brokenness, out of our, the death that we were in and suffering from. 
you bought us back, and we're so glad. We just rejoice in that. We worship you. You are our rescuer. You're our, our avenger. You're our redeemer. You're the one who is willing to pay the price and to buy us back. And we just worship you as that loving, redeeming God uh, that we're so glad to know. Father, too, um, it's, it's not just enough for us to know it. We have to show it also. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to have a redeeming love for the people around us. Help us, to, help us to be changed and have a love like you have for the people around us, like Ruth and like Boaz, most importantly, like what Jesus Christ has. A willingness to sacrifice self, a willingness to do whatever it takes to buy people up out of their bondage, a willingness to do what it takes to love people into the kingdom. Father, forgive us. We're so short-sighted sometimes. We're so selfish sometimes with our time, with our energies, with all of these things that, that we forget what was done for us. But Lord, when we hear it again today, May it remind us that we're to be about your business. We're to be the Ruths and the Boazes to the people around us. And uh, so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you, Lord God, that it was a, it was a product of the love of Ruth and Boaz um, who, uh, who, who came the, the, the man Obed, who was the, the son of, of Jesse, who was the, the, the father, or, or the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, King David of whom, whose line, Jesus Christ came forward. So, Father, we thank you and we worship you today for bringing about this kinsman, king, kinsman redeemer um, who was brought about from the line of Ruth and the line of Boaz. We just thank you. We worship you for the way you've put it all together. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. 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 Lord bless you. I hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy your day today. Thank you for being here.